Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. So uh, last time we, we talked about a number of things. We talked about we were, we're still in the first chapter. Uh, we're still in the first chapter of Leviticus, and we will maybe get to chapter two. I don't know. Um, there's a couple more things that I wanted to bring out uh, with the help of Gary North's commentary. Uh, that was interesting. And again, we've been talking about as we look at the book of Leviticus, we, we do want to see the spiritual truths uh, that are found in there. Um, Leviticus does point us to Jesus Christ. Uh, we talked about last time how, and the time before that, uh, how the burnt offering is a, uh, a, a perfect picture of Christ. The fact that it's a whole burnt offering. Every, you know, um, everything of the offering was, was put on the fire, save the skin, right? And um, completely to uh, be consumed so that the worshiper could even approach God. You, you approach God with the burnt offering, and that was your covering. We, If you go back and listen to the, the previous uh, sessions, we talked about how you know we hold to covenant theology, and there's a five-point covenantal model. And it's um, they use the, the acronym uh, theos, which is the Greek word for God, and you have T for transcendence, H for hierarchy, uh, e for ethics or stipulations, uh, O for oaths, sanctions, and S for succession. And so we talked about how the first five books of the Bible represent that covenantal model. Um, Genesis and, and God's transcendence as a creator. Exodus, the, the, the hierarchy and the kings. Um, you know, God is king over all of the kings. And... Uh, we also see the, the hierarchy where God gives the people a mediator through Moses. Um, the third book of the Bible is Leviticus, and that's the, the ethics, the stipulations, the, the laws. Uh, numbers is the sanctions where they didn't go into the promised land as they were commanded to, and so they suffered 40 years in the wilderness because of that. And then Deuteronomy uh, points us to succession where the new generation is about to go in and inherit the land. So we talked about the Ten Commandments and two sets of five, um, and we were talking about how the the five main sacrifices talked about in the beginning of Leviticus also point to the covenantal model. So the burnt offering, the first one, is um, pointing to transcendence. The entire thing is consumed, and for us, it uh, the people of Israel, they needed a covering to even approach God. They needed that offering, and Christ is that offering for us that that whole burnt offering completely consumed right to to cover us um so that we might have relationship with god we might be able to approach god 
And so we talked about that a little bit more in depth and, and discussed those things. So, uh, you know, if, if I talk about it all over again, that'll be half the session. So we won't do that. Um, but we're talking about that, that first offering still. So we talked about the spiritual truth, you know, pointing to Christ and our need for a covering. And we started talking about the fact that uh, the book of Leviticus, uh, talking about Gary North's commentary, uh, Boundaries and Dominion, and the idea that Gary North is an economist, and he is approaching this, looking at it as, how does this apply to economics? How does this apply to nations and how we ought to be uh, conducting ourselves? And so we talked about a, a few different things. We talked about the value of sacrifice. Um, you know, the, let me just scroll down a bit here. His, his first chapter, and regarding the first chapter of Leviticus, was about sacrifice, stewardship, and debt. So we talked about the law of the sacrifices um, and what it represented, the fact that it had to be blemish-free and why that was. Um, the idea of substitute sacrifices, if we would try to give less than what God had required and kind of said, you know, that seems crazy that anyone would offer less than what God specifically spelled out for us. Like, this is what you bring to a holy God and you don't bring something less. Those Israelites, they actually did that. Can you believe it? And then we have to look at ourselves and how often does God tell us exactly what he expects of us um, and how often do we fail to do so? We give him less. We leave him... You know, we give him the dregs, you know, if anything, well, you know, we'll show up, but uh, our lives aren't living sacrifices. So we talked about that. We talked about public sacrifice and implicit stewardship, um, about a covenant keeping man and offering the best of his flock as a token of God's absolute ownership of everything he has. Um, and by doing that, he was able to retain title of everything that God did give to him to his possession, but he was a steward of those things and how he handled his resources uh was important he had to he had to be representing uh god and how he did it so we talked about that we talked about uh free market versus state and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that kind of idea and i kind of asked the question that gary north asked was like well which one was uh the uh what was the question it, it was um which institution best represents the new sovereign, the free state of the market? <laughs> but the idea was sovereign. Is, is the market, the free market, sovereign, or is the state sovereign? And it's neither. <laughs> God is the one who is sovereign. Um, the free market has its place, right? How we conduct ourselves in the market, there's, there's a place for that. Um, and the state, there's a place for that. God, it, both are a blessing when they stay in their lane and when they do um, what they're supposed to under the authority of God. So we talked a little bit about that last time. So tonight we are coming to the next section, which is debt relief. Now who thinks of sacrifices and thinks of debt relief? Um, well, Gary North for one. <laughs> and so hopefully maybe by the end of tonight you'll, you'll also be thinking that. Um, the fact of the matter is the law made it plain that there, there's a price to pay for sin. Man must pay this price, and there's no escaping it. God imposes it. God collects it. The question is, how high is the price? Is it higher than any sin-corrupted man? If it is higher, rather, than any sin-corrupted man can pay, 
Must all men pay the penalty throughout eternity? If not, who can and who will pay for it? And so obviously we know the answer to some of those questions, right? Uh, we know that we can't pay it unless we're paying it for all eternity. If we bear our sin, we will spend eternity uh, paying for that sin. And we know that Christ has come to take on that sin, to pay the price that we can have relationship with God. And so he's taken away our debt, right? The wages of sin is, is death. We owe our, our death. What sacrifices are not is buying God's favor. When we talked about this last time, or the time before that, one of those times, we talked about how in, in pagan cultures, uh, sacrifices were a way to manipulate the gods. If I do this for you, if I sacrifice in this way, you'll give me what I'm looking for, right? And so it's um, the order of operations was reversed. We're hoping that um, the pagans would be hoping that if, if they did something, if they offered something, God would give them, you know, the, the crops to grow or the victory over the enemies or fertility or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but that's not what uh, the, the sacrifice system, according to God in the Old Testament, was redemptive in nature. You know, God was giving us a way to have a relationship with him. Um, but he was teaching us things along the way and he was pointing to the fact that our sins need to be covered. So we're not buying God's favor. We're not buying off his wrath. Um, like I said, contrasting that with pagan religions, the covenant-keeping sacrifice pointed to redemption. It pointed to Christ, who is the representative. Um, the blood of bulls and goats did not take away sins, but it did defer God's wrath in history. The animal's death was judicially representative. It was part of that hierarchical system of authority. It was an acknowledgment of man's subordination to God. You know, we we are below God. We owe him. Um, and, and we have this legal debt. Uh, it also deals with ownership. Hierarchy and representation, point two of the covenant, leads to ownership, which is point three. Uh, sacrifices involve the ec an economic loss. So he says, you know, Adam violated God's boundary and there was a cost imposed. And so there's, he explains in, in, in these five points, Adam denied God's absolute sovereignty, right? His transcendence, he denied that by doing what he did. He revolted against God's authority, you know, the hierarchy. He violated God's property. He took what did not belong to him, what he was commanded not to take. That was point three. And so his sanctions, point four, are mandatory. And with the covenant of works, with that initial covenant, the succession was nothing. It was death. You, you fail to obey and you have no promise of a, of a future, of an inheritance. And God, in his mercy, uh, gave him a promise for, for hope for the future. And instituted right then and there the first sacrifice, the first, burst, the first burnt offering. I mentioned last time with the burnt offering, uh, we find out, you know, in the first chapter, you flay the sacrifice, right? You skin it. Uh, and we find out later on that skin would be given to the priest. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be burned on the altar with everything else. And when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God, and they realized their nakedness, and now they need to be clothed, they need to be covered. And he didn't give them cotton, he didn't give them wool, he didn't give them linen, he gave them skins. So the, the first time sin enters the picture, a death needs to take place. And so an animal was sacrificed, and they received the covering of the skins. Um, and we, we point forward to Christ, and here he comes, and he sacrificed he takes on our sin, our debt, 
pays that penalty in his own flesh and he gives us his robe of righteousness so now we're we're covered with Christ's righteousness um, so even from the garden looking forward this is what we see when it comes to debt relief um, first of all there's there's substantial loss right we, we talked about how the sacrifice had to be the best of what they had it had to be you know a certain age it had to be male it had to be blemish free there couldn't be anything wrong with it why did it have to be blemish free well because any imperfection any any issue with it would be a, a picture of, of sin right and if 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 your substitute has sin well they can't pay for your sins they have to pay for their own so we need something blemish free to take on our sin for us and not be paying for their own and this is the, you know the picture that Christ would be the, the ultimate fulfillment of the sacrifice had to be a high value because God would offer a sacrifice that would be of the highest value he was giving his son um, to be that perfect lamb uh, so the mosaic system symbolized the, the perfectionist aspect of, a, of atonement um, and we even see a closer example we see uh, with Abraham and Isaac he tells them you're gonna have to sacrifice your son now we're not even talking about an animal we're talking about a, a promised son and um, you know he had told Abraham he had a future he'd have descendants and they'd be as numerous as you know the stars in the sky and the, and the sand on, on the beach um, and now he was calling him to sacrifice him and fortunately we know obviously he offered a substitute there a ram but later on he'd be sending his own son to to pay that price so if you have a faithful Israelite, right, who is on board with this, you know, um, not trying to substitute, not trying to do anything, um, he still couldn't expect to pay for his sin by forfeiting a, a valuable animal. Uh, he has to recognize in this whole thing the inescapable uh, cost of God's sanctions against sin. Um, so you have substantial loss there's a hierarchy of the debt the cost is greater when you think about the cost that man owes to god the cost is greater than all of mankind's total wealth right we talked about that how there's it has to be this one animal perfect animal but it's only one he doesn't take everything uh the reality is if, if mankind on their own try to say you know or an individual man say i'm gonna pay for my own sin i will i will give all my wealth it's just like you have no idea your um, your idea of God is too low to think that you can somehow pay him off um, with all your wealth right was it a question or a comment or just enjoying the <laughs> enjoying the uh, yeah um, so it brings up um, you know he brings up Matthew 16 26 the idea of you know gaining the whole world yet losing your soul that nothing is worth your soul uh, before God there's nothing that you can give that can do that he also brings up uh, Matthew 18 is anyone familiar with the parable in Matthew 18 anyone Bueller? feel free to open up to it what's that there's a parable in Matthew 18 you're thinking probably of um, reconciliation what no 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 um, that might be uh, Matthew 18 there are there's the parable of the lost sheep. There is the um, 
Is the power of the voice one here? I don't think so. That's the one we're gonna look at. Um, yes, chapter eighteen, starting verse twenty-one, going to the end of the the chapter. Uh, um, we'll read it just so we have the context, because most people think of this as in one particular way, which is generally how a parable works. There's there's one particular truth that you're looking for here. And, and Gary North points out some, some interesting things. Uh, because remember, for a parable to work, there has to be a, a physical you know, truth, reality, to what's going on. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so starting in, in verse, uh, well, we'll start in verse 23, because Peter's asking him about um, being forgiving. And Jesus says as many as, you know, he says as many seven times. And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven, but, but 77 times. Uh, verse 23 and following. Therefore, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master cast him or delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what do we see here? <laughs> Conditional forgiveness, right? Um, in, re, in, in terms of economics, right, in, in terms of uh, how we're dealing with people, um, there's, a, there's an economic reality that will translate into spiritual truth, right? But if I've lended to someone for commercial purposes, right, in a business transaction, that sort of thing, and I, I've given them that, um, I should not expect repayment if my debts are forgiven, right? If some, if I've owed a great sum and was told, okay, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay it back um, because I couldn't or I was struggling. I should not be going out and looking for someone to repay the, the, the loan that they had to me. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the sense of thinking about like bankruptcy, right? Um, it's under certain circumstances here. So the, the debt-credit relationship is in, inescapably hierarchical. Seeing that word. Um, if you're probably familiar with the, the proverb, uh, chapter 22, verse 7, the borrower is slave to the lender. Right? Um, this is something that we tend to forget in our debt, in our society of, of easy debt, you know, easy credit. Uh, everyone wants to give you a credit card uh, just as soon as you're, you're born practically. Like, oh, you have a social security number. Let's give you a credit card. Um, 
I remember going to college and they were lined up outside, you know, all these credit card companies like, I don't have a job. It's fine. Just sign here and, you know, we'll give you some money. Um, but the idea is when God grants me credit, forgiveness, I must grant someone else credit. Uh, and that person has become, has become God's servant through me. Um, this is a reminder, though, as we consider this topic, that the biblical law recommends that God's people... Uh, to become creditors to covenant breakers, not debtors to them. Um, if you look at, uh, I'll look it up real quick. Uh, Deuteronomy 28:12. Are you familiar with that? Um, where it says that you shall, you shall lend but not borrow. Um, where does it say? The Lord will. Mm, that's not right. 28:12. Yeah, the second part of it, right? The Lord will open to you his good treasury of the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Like that's a sign of covenant blessing is that we would be lending and not borrowing. Because when you borrow, you become a slave. You become indebted. Your first priority has to be to pay that that amount back. Um, so God is encouraging his people not to become debtors and if they would be obedient to him if they would follow in his ways they wouldn't they would be blessed in such a way that they could lend to others but not have to be dependent on others um so the debtor here owed money to the rich master um the unjust steward was a middleman he's a steward right and so there's the other parable of the, the steward who's been found to be corrupt and so he's being fired and all of a sudden he's like making deals with everyone like here how do you much do you owe like here right half you know and so he's trying to and uh get himself in good with other people because he doesn't you know he's too proud to to beg but he's you know he's at this stage in his life he's like i, I can't i'm not strong enough to handle a shovel and get out there and, and and dig ditches or do whatever i have to do to to work so he's looking to be taken in by people by by helping them out with um the responsibility he has left for this limited amount of time so we have the steward who owes this huge amount um, he hasn't been doing a very good job he's in debt to the master and this debtor was borrowing money from the steward who had to get it from the master so it wasn't like the steward had he was financially independent and he was giving this money to him he, Ultimately, it all came from the master. So the steward had advanced the poor person money that did not belong to him. It, brought, it was borrowed from the master. The steward had legal control over the money temporarily. He did not own it. This is the definition of all stewardship. Temporary legal control over the use of another person's asset. Do we see the spiritual reality here and the physical reality here? As far as we are stewards. No one owns anything um, that doesn't belong to God because God is a creator of everything so we are merely stewards of his resources we are not autonomous owners you know with our own control you know it, it nothing is is ours by just because uh if that makes sense that's not the best way to word it but <laughs> we're following along um this leads to an important conclusion the master's legal annulment of the debt owed to him by the steward was therefore also a legal annulment of the debt of all the debtors 
under, under the steward's economic authority. Does that make sense? The debt was following a hierarchy. So the steward owed the master. And he was the one who was supposed to collect from other people to give to the master what he owed, right? And he wasn't able to do it, so he was forgiven. That means he didn't have to collect. He didn't have to try to keep chasing after people. Um, and so he, but he's called unjust. Um, his sin was more than just an ethical injustice, it says, uh, to a poor person. It was actually a judicial rebellion against the master. He was trying to collect a payment from the poor man. He was saying, I'm no longer a middleman. Now my debt has been forgiven. I am now the owner of, of those assets. The credit I extended with borrowed money is owed to me, irrespective of my previous obligations. I'm no longer a steward. I'm no longer under hierarchy. I can now collect what is lawfully mine from those who are under me. Do you see? See the problem here? See what he's doing? Um, he has no right to collect that debt now it was forgiven him so he could forgive others but he's still trying to now he's owed and of course we can think about this in a spiritual sense when it comes to forgiveness here it's clear the, the steward owed so much to the master he could never repay right ten thousand talents that was that was beyond his ability to earn all right and here he's forgiven it and yet if other people want forgiveness from us because we owe God everything. We owe him our very lives, right? Um, and he's forgiven us. So we have no right to tell other people, I basically own you. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to hold it over you. I'm going to find a way to to manipulate it or whatever to, to put you in a position where I feel like you're constantly indebted to me and I will set the price of your forgiveness, right? Um, that's not how it works. We've been forgiven, and so we're called to forgive others. So that's the spiritual reality here in the in the parable. But legally, economically, what does this look like in the, in the real world? Because this is a real world example. As outrageous as it might seem, it, it there's truth to it. So his refusal to cancel the debt that had been owed to the master was a rebellious declaration of independence. He became a thief and a usurper, for he was trying to collect for his own account assets that, economically speaking, belonged to the master. It wasn't. It was never his to begin with, right? Uh, he was trying to profit from the master's mercy. He refused to acknowledge the economics of forgiveness. Question. So what happens? He's stealing. He's stealing, right? He's like, all right, this guy is not looking for my money anymore, but you know, I'm going to go and get it anyway. Even though it's not supposed to go to him, it's supposed to go to the master. Um, this was something, this is my own note because this came much later after Gary uh, wrote this. But um, think of uh, intersectionality. Are you familiar with the term? The idea of um, there's like these degrees of oppression, you know, it, it's a power struggle. We, we hear about it in like, you know, like these Marxist terms like, well, um, if you're a woman, you're oppressed because man, men are the ones with all the power and all the authority and all the influence, right? So to be a woman is to be oppressed. But if you're if you're a different nationality, or you, well, you can be the same nationality. If you're black, well, then you're a minority and you're oppressed and, and things are against you. Uh, if you're homosexual, you're another minority. You know, it's another level of oppression. Um, people don't treat you fairly because of your orientation or whatever. Um, 
That's right. You're like you're 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 the most oppressed person on the face of the planet, at least here in America, right? But what they do is is seek to change things around to get power over you. Well, you can't speak to me because you don't have the experience I I have, um, or you know you're you're in a position of power, so we must somehow uh, handicap you. You know, we must give preference to other people and give them favor and, and preference, you know, sort of like affirmative action on, on steroids to make things right. So this is kind of the idea of we don't have this economics of forgiveness. Instead of recognizing we're all sinners before God, we're all guilty before God, we all deserve damnation before God, but there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ and we're new creatures. And now we're brothers and sisters in relationship to each other. And that's how we should be looking at the world. No, I identify as this, and you haven't treated me well, or you are a representative of a uh, of a class that hasn't treated my class well, and so therefore uh, there is no forgiveness for you. There's only you constantly p trying to pay the debt until someone somewhere says, "Okay, we're square," which will never ever happen because we're sinners and we will milk something after the cow is long since dead. We will just keep going and going. Um, we don't understand uh, forgiveness. We want power. Do you like that? <laughs> That's gross. Um, <laughs> milking dead cows. But there we are. There we are. Um, so when our understanding of our relationship to God and um, by implication each other is forgotten, the spiritual result is we're squabbling over things that aren't ours. You know, We're fighting for things that don't belong to us. Um, we're just deciding that this is what we ought to have. Uh, the master had implicitly released the poor man from his debt. Because he had forgiven the steward, he had forgiven the poor man. Um, when the unjust steward refused to acknowledge the, the legality of, his, of this indirect release, he held to the letter of the law, the terms of the original contract, right? Uh, and so... What does it say here? Rather than to the underlying economics of the transaction. There's a hierarchical representation and lawful subordination. Um, because he refused to do that, because he refused to uh, abide by the forgiveness and, and, and pass that along to others, the master reimposed the debt. He came back after him for it um, to remind the, the steward that he was nothing but a steward. Right? He wasn't a master in his own right. He did not have the right to just take whatever he wanted. Um, and so because the master was truly the master, he threw him in prison to remind him, well, more than remind him, to punish him for his failure to recognize what he should have recognized, what was, was plain and truthful um, that anyone could see. Here's a, pro here's a problem for us uh, in that, in, in sense of economics. By consigning the unjust steward to prison, uh, does anyone notice what didn't happen there? When he throws the unjust steward in prison, is there anything that left unresolved? It's not meant to be a trick question. The, um, the other servant no longer owed. He's still in prison. You oh, don't see him. You don't see him released. You don't see him released. What's that? There was no end sentence. Oh, no, because what happens is the he's put in a in a debtor's prison 
And basically, he's left there either to somehow try to work off his debt that he owes or for someone, and we'll talk about that in a minute, a family member, a kinsman redeemer to come and redeem his debt. You know, they put someone in prison, so either you're going to work it off and take it as long as it takes, or someone's going to come and say, please let them go. I'll pay the debt, right? That's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But since, since the master has thrown the steward in the prison, and what's the obligations? Well, you're not coming out until you paid the last cent. He's always 10,000 talents. He's going to be in there a very long time, right? But while he's in, in prison, his, his family and those he's associated with, they have every right to try to collect the debt that they can from everyone else to pay off what he owes. It's going to be impossible because he couldn't do that, right? He's, I mean, he's begging for patience and it's like, oh, you know, I'll make it work. But he didn't. He wasn't ready to pay the debt when he was called upon. Here he was. You have this debt outstanding. It's time. It's time to pay. And he is not able to do it. But leaving that poor man in prison gives him, you know, he's got to work off the debt to him so he can try to use that to pay off the master. He's got an impossible task. But legally, economically, this is how it's supposed to work. Um, we're, we're much grateful for uh, <laughs> the forgiveness of God in, in a spiritual reality and being different. Ultimately, we all owe our... our uh, our sins to God. You have a question, comment? Maybe for later. It's like there was also the year of Jubilee, which was very significant in the Jewish culture and like the debt system, mm -hmm. where right that can be thought of as symbolic of Christ. Well, that's well, that's the thing. Why do, why is there a year of Jubilee? Who provides that? Who who writes that into the law? And what does it point to? It's, it's God <laughs> pointing to His system. Of, of forgiveness, recognizing that left to ourselves, <laughs> we would just be forever in debt because we mess things up. Um, so there is there is something about that, and we'll um, we'll share some other things uh, in the meantime. So so he couldn't unilaterally uh, release the debt because it would have been stealing from the steward. The steward has every right to try to um, get the assets he needs to pay his own debt. Um, so I mentioned, like, this is a real-world example, as extreme as it might seem, but it, it points to these great spiritual realities. The next, the, the thing to see here is the day of reckoning, which is an accounting comp, uh, concept, right? You, know, you have to, you have to reckon these debts. You have to deal with this. Some something. All right, we we've come to the point where things have to be sorted out. Bills have to be paid. Um, you know, we're we're calling in that that paper. Um, but it had come, this day of reckoning had come for both the steward and the poor debtor. Time had run out for both of them. Their, their debt pyramid had been toppled. Um, this is something we need to keep in mind, especially in, in our own society when it comes to the, the easiness of getting into debt. Um, you know, and are these just things? Are we being wise in our stewardship of the resources God has given us, or are we trying to have things easy for now, but what will be the cost down the road? Uh, you know, I remember a pastor had, had preached on, he had preached through Ephesians, like early on when we were here, and, you know, there's a there's a there's one of the verses in there, so I'm like, you know, the, let the thief steal no longer, but let him work and, you know, have enough to share with others. And he talked about what, what does stealing look like? Like you think of like, you know, 
she left her pocketbook and I, I grabbed her wallet. <laughs> but there's actually many ways that we can steal. You can steal in the workplace. You can steal time. You can steal supplies. Uh, you can steal from yourself. <laughs> you know, um, using uh, poor stewardship when it comes to our finances and, and trying to get something now that's it's trivial or it's whatever and, and we're we're paying these insane interest fees and stuff like that. We're stealing our from our future, <laughs> you know, from the time that we have, from the finances we have, you know, our family obligations that we have down the road. Um, if we're not wise about it, it's going to cost somewhere. It's going to cost someone. Um, so being aware of of the of the potential dangers in in debt is something that's important. So this is thinking about that. What's the hope? Uh, he says the hierarchy of, of debt repayment can be felt up and down the chain of obligations. Those fool and, foolish enough to have indebted themselves would now be reminded of the hierarchy. Question? Comment? Yeah, I have a question. Okay. You're talking about the, the poor man that was thrown in prison, right? And how that's unresolved mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the account. Mm -hmm. For now, yes. <laughs> well, there's a little bit more, too. There's a little bit more for possible hope. But go ahead. In the parable? Not in the parable. Well, I mean, in terms of the the reality of how could someone get out of debt in that situation? The poor man? What? How could the poor man get out of debt in that situation? He wasn't in debt anymore. What? No, but he but he's not in debt anymore. He is. To who? To the steward, to the master. No, the debt was forgiven. The debt was forgiven, but he put him back in prison, so he paid the debt. It was reimposed. See, when he put him in prison, it was because he had the ability to say, you know what, I, I forfeit that. Because the man was trying to steal from him and collect like he was still in his employee. I'm like, all right, so you're still in my employee. <laughs> to prison you go because you, you're not ready to uh, pay that debt and the day of reckoning has come. Um, he says that the uh, indebting himself to an unjust steward, the poor man brought the master's judgment on his own head. Said covenant keepers should learn this lesson well. Do not become indebted to covenant breakers. Um, there's there's danger there. Um, the stranger that is within thee shall he uses King James here. Thank you for that. Um, within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. Remember, it's the borrower's slave to the lender. The, the one who is, is giving out credit, who's, who's giving out things, they're the one in power. They're the one with authority. Um, and this would be a curse upon them, is that they would be the one forced to borrow, forced to accept terms of, of interest and, and, and possibly slavery. Because if you couldn't pay your debts, you were put into a debtor prison or you were, you were first to, you know, sold into slavery so you could work off, you know, someone else would pay your debt and you'd have to just work for them uh, for the time. So it says, when God periodically collects his debts from covenant breakers in history, um, all of those who are obligated to them or dependent on them feel the economic pain, including covenant keepers. And so there's a reminder for us to, uh, in Romans, not to owe anything to anyone except to love, right? Uh, the one who uh, loves another has fulfilled the law. But in terms of what we're looking at here with, with economics... Uh, there was one hope for the unjust steward, his kings, his kinsman redeemer, right? The, the, the steward was the head of his household, but economically, the kinsman redeemer was the only one who could actually help him. He's, 
he's in prison. He can't do anything else. He could try to work it off, but it's just going to be impossible. If someone who had the authority could come in and show mercy, there's the potential for escape. So he says there's three ways for the kinsman redeemer to be able to help. He can pay off the debt, period. That's what. That's why he's in prison, because he has this debt he can't pay. So he could just pay off the debt himself. He could offer to replace the steward in prison. He could try to take his position and, and go in there and, and so the man could be freed. Or he could pay off the poor man's debt and plead for mercy from the master on the basis of this representative act of mercy. The master was willing to forgive him this debt, and he was enraged because... He tried to superimpose this debt on someone who should have been free by going down the chain of command there. And if the kinsman redeemer pays off that poor man's debt and says, listen, he's he's now free. What he did was wrong, but we've 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 righted that wrong. Could you have mercy on him and, and forgive that debt again and, and you know let's hope he's learned his lesson and doesn't try any more, you know, nonsense. All right, so those were some of the possibilities. If the steward consented to him doing that, paying off the debt of the kinsman redeemer, um, he might receive mercy from the master. But if the steward remained adamant against the poor man, he himself would remain in the debtor's prison. So if he tries to just still hold on to that power, I mean, it's insane to think of, but people do crazy things when it comes to money, when it comes to selfishness, when they're, when they're so wrapped up in their own head about what they want or what they think that they're owed, uh, they can't get out of their own way. They're constantly falling into the same cycles. You know, um, Be careful about trying to save the angry man because he'll only just get into trouble again, right? So does that make sense so far? I know that's a lot of stuff when you're trying to figure out, like, well, what does that have to do? What does that have to do with all of this as far as you know economics and, and debt and and forgiveness but there's still some more things that we're going to talk about this is kind of a long section but hopefully we'll learn something from it the second option you mentioned about like the taking his place um, prisoner when benjamin was going to be arrested i think it was judah who interceded mm -hmm. um to like take his place right which, of course, is significant because Christ is a blind Jew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we see pictures of that throughout, you know. Um, you know, these are these are types pointing to Christ, the idea of taking the place. So paying the debt, you know, being being the prisoner, as it were. Uh, so that, that's a, a possibility. What I mentioned last time, I think just like in, in conversation after the fact, that talking about mercy. Um, there can be no mercy without sacrifice. Uh, God's mercy to mankind is demonstrated through the sacrifice of his son, a perfect man. When man refuses God's mandatory sacrifices, what God calls upon them to sacrifice, to recognize that they are stewards, to recognize that they're subordinate to God, um, they become progressively merciless. And if can we see that in our society today? We don't honor God in our society we don't pay him the sacrifices that he called to like we we know and, and I'll, I'll mention again as we close out this section if we close it out tonight um there's no more animal sacrifices right god doesn't ask that of us anymore um he has offered he has given us the once for all sacrifice in jesus christ 
But as we mentioned throughout the New Testament, there's references to sacrifices, that we're to be living sacrifices, right? We're to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. We're supposed to, um, good works as, as sacrifices, you know, unto God, a pleasing aroma to him, a fragrant, you know, um, when Paul is being assisted by the Philippians and he's thanking them for the gift, he goes, that was a, uh, an acceptable offering in God's sight, a pleasing sacrifice, a fragrant aroma. Um, when we don't give the sacrifices that God requires, we actually become merciless. Uh, look at our society. We don't honor God. We don't offer any kind of sacrifice uh, to him. Um, but we say that we have a standard of of righteousness right you know we we promote justice and oh isn't democracy great because you know that's what our enemies hate us because we have democracy we have freedom we have justice like that's not why they hate you <laughs> it's not not because you're just so just um they hate us for the negative influence we bring the the the, the horrible things that we import um to other nations we're so righteous but we we sacrifice children right we're so righteous, but we have no love for our neighbor. Uh, we're, we're, we're so righteous, but we um, we set up regulations to that end up hurting people and oppressing people. Um, you know, we're so righteous, but we'll, we'll, we'll cage people for years with no hope of, uh, of even the victim being uh, compensated for their loss. You know, and we, we think of God's law... Um, and the penalties that go along with God's law. If, if you kill, if you rape, your life is forfeit. It's taken. So because you have this, you have violated an image of God or even killed an image of God, and so your life is supposed to be forfeit. You don't go to prison for the rest of your life so that the victim's family can pay for your you know um, three meals a day and and a roof over your head, um, cage as it is, um, but with their tax dollars. You know, um, if someone steals from you, um, they're supposed to pay it back to you. <laughs> and sold into slavery if they can't to, to pay off that debt. Um, but they work it off and then they're done. They don't go to jail for 10 years, so the victim has lost both their car or whatever other property or money. Um, and they lose tax dollars to, again, uh, the upkeep. This is not justice. This is not mercy. Um, so the blood sacrifices are no more. The only sacrifice that's acceptable now is Jesus Christ. But all men are required by God to acknowledge this sacrifice verbally, ritually, ethically, and financially, i.e. the tithe. Um, man's debt under the old economy, the old covenant economy, was not forgiven, right? We, we talked about the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. The, the repayment was just deferred. It was, it was pushed back to... Um, he likens the sacrifices to interest payments to God. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, the, the payment's not here yet, but in the meantime, this is what you pay to remember that you owed God this huge debt. Um, but it wasn't paying the principal. Um, by way of analogy, whenever Israel was guilty, um, whenever they quit paying, right, whenever they failed to offer sacrifices or failed to offer the sacrifice that God had required, um, these were missing payments. <laughs> they were missing the interest payments, as it were. Uh, to, and so these missed payments were just added to the principal owed. And so he goes, Israel's debt to God grew ever larger. And finally, in AD 70, God called in the debt. <laughs> Time was up, right? They had uh, 
all this time to to repent, to do what God required of them, um, to find God's favor, to find his blessing. Instead, they just continued in their rebellion. They, they continued to um, deny God what belonged to God. And so in AD 70, Israel went bankrupt publicly. Everything was taken. They're destroyed. They're wiped out. Uh, he says, forgive us our debts is no idle phrase. Right? Um, they refused to seek forgiveness the way God had told them to. And so they were they were punished. Um, says the presence of the required sacrifices in the Mosaic economy testified to the continued presence of the debt in God's account books and also to teach each man their need to repay God in the future. The cosmic creditor will eventually demand repayment of everything owed to him. On the final day of reckoning, every person will have to produce one of two things, sufficient funds to pay the debt, impossible, or evidence that he had already accepted the generosity of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, who had paid the debt. Um, and at that final judgment, the books are closed forever, and um, it's the exit from the ultimate debtor's prison. He says, forgiving a sin against us, we symbolically and legally forgive a debt that's owed to God through us. That's why we talk about, well, we, talk, we pray, right, in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, um, well, what does it say? Forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, um, as we forgive those who have, because I'm thinking like transgress. There's too many different words for it. <laughs> um, let's just look at them real quick. Uh, just look at the different examples. Luke 11, Matthew 6. Someone want to read one of them? No one? You'll read Luke 11 and you'll read Matthew 6? Great. Him, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Um, and should I read five and six? No, that's fine. Um, forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So you already see like the, <laughs> the use of the word sin and debt there. And Matthew 6? The whole thing or just that portion? Just that portion is fine. Um, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors right so this idea of, of debt right someone sins against us you know they owe us it's a debt they're indebted to us but we want forgiveness from God and we owe God way more than any of us um, could be owed by anyone on the planet right there, there is no matter the worst thing that they can do to us it's nothing compared to our life of sin and rebellion against God. We can never pay the debt. Um, and so we're, we're called to extend forgiveness as God's representative agents. You know, we're showing mercy, um, his mercy, to his debtors, right? And, I mean, think of when, especially as Christians, if people sin against us, if they attack the church. You know, what does Jesus say to Saul on the road to Damascus? You know, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? <laughs> I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. He's persecuting the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And Christ takes it as a personal affront to him, a personal attack on him. Um, I mean, even even the words of, of Christ on the cross, um, when they're when the guards are casting lots for his clothes and and um, you know they're 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 dividing it up among themselves, and we hear, you know, 
forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Some people say it's a textual variant. We're not going to get there. <laughs> Assuming that those were the words spoken, because we, we see that from Stephen later on, like don't hold this against them, right? Uh, victims' rights allow forgiveness. If, if someone has sinned against someone in the Old Testament economy, you could forgive them. Um, you know, you had the right to say, uh, you don't have to punish them for this sin. I'm willing to forgive. So that was something that was a possibility. We mentioned um, back, maybe it was after the after the our session was over and we were talking about um, like adultery. Adultery is punishable by death, but Joseph is called the righteous man because though Mary was pregnant and he knew it wasn't his, <laughs> you know, uh, he wasn't going to put her to death publicly. He was going to put her away, divorce her quietly, right? So, but he's called righteous, but he was going to let this adulteress as far as he knows, live. So he had the right to do that. He was a victim. He was betrayed based on the human evidence that he had at the moment. Um, and yet he was willing to forgive and he's called righteous. Um, so we have that. We have the ability to, to forgive. Let me just check our time real quick. I'm trying to finish up this part. Yeah. So we're not exactly getting out to the next session yet, uh, the next um, chapter. The loss of the value of a sacrifice made to God symbolized two things. God's payment of his own son, the Messiah, and the, patient that, the patience that we have shown to those who have sinned against us. We are stewards and we are not owners. When we forgive others, we offer up a sacrifice to God, extending grace to sinners by forfeiting whatever they legally owe to us. Of course, we are gaining heavenly resources by doing this, right? Um, let's see, do I have enough time to finish this? notes here I'm thinking about pausing it here I know this is a this is a lot it's a lot to think about um, so we'll we'll close here uh, we'll still have some more things to share from this first chapter uh, but as I, I've said before in the beginning um, as we look at Leviticus uh, understanding you know, especially for you guys who, who weren't here for the, the first couple of sessions. Um, the Bible gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And that's not just spiritual life. It's not just, um, you know, you know, we think of like just our relationship with God and, you know, oh, we're forgiven and we have, you know, we, you know, we can pray and we can do these things. And, and yes, that's all true. I mean, the fact that we have Christ is that that whole burned offering. You know that that covering for our sins means we can approach God. We we can have relationship with Him, um, and that's tremendous. And as far as how we conduct ourselves with each other, but a, a lot of people are under the um, the misconception that like the Bible is only for us for spiritual realities, spiritual truths, um, and they don't recognize that the Bible has something to say about how nations conduct themselves. Uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, covenant keepers versus covenant breakers. And keep in mind, when God comes in um, and he's bringing his people into the promised land, he tells them uh, in Leviticus, you know, don't do these things. And he's given them a list of things that he's forbidding them to do. But he says, the nations that you're driving out, they did all these things. So this means this is God's standard. And these people have broken my standard. And he told Abraham... You know, their time isn't up yet. You know, they haven't filled up their iniquity yet. Um, but a day of reckoning is coming. So over 400 years later, 
the people of Israel go from Abraham, who has no son, <laughs> to the, the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, two million strong, uh, but 400 years have passed. And these people have continued in their sin and their rebellion against God. They have not honored him. Their, their ways were corrupt and perverse. And according to God's standard, he judged them. He didn't say, listen, these Canaanites, they have a constitution and they're not keeping it. And so based on their standard, I'm going to judge them and punish them. He says, they've broken my law. And so I'm going to judge them and punish them. And if you do what they did, I'm going to judge and punish you. Well, of course, we know that to be uh, the case later on. But God speaks to nations and, and tells them how they ought to conduct themselves. What does justice look like? What does righteousness look like? Uh, just because times have changed and, and we have different technology, does not we don't escape the principles found here as far as the fact that we're stewards. And so we mentioned last time about the idea of um, the free market versus state. Um, and what's the better thing to take charge but both of them, apart from God and his way of doing things, it's just another form of autonomy. Do you want autonomy of the, of the state, or do you want the autonomy of the free market? Are we honoring God? Are we recognizing that we're stewards? Are we recognizing that we have to honor him with how we um, conduct even our economy? All right, These things, are, it's not morally neutral. There is no neutrality in God's world. Um, th there aren't things that are like this that are devoid of morality god has something to say about it and there's reasons behind it, and there's principles behind it so we're drawing out some of these principles it's something that's often left behind because they don't think that has they don't think god has anything to say to nations it's like well it's just you know they have some general principles here but it's, it's nothing compared to the detail that god gives us the framework that he gives us so this is the importance of doing this so even though some of this might feel <laughs> tedious at first you know or especially if you're really tired you know um, i see like wow it's really involved and i'm not sure how that has anything to do with me um but as we mentioned before the fact of the matter is gary north is writing this book and he says in his introduction um i'm writing for an audience that doesn't exist yet but one day people are going to be looking to do things god's way they're they're going to be looking to conduct themselves in a way that is honoring to god uh, and therefore, you know, <laughs> the way to blessing. Uh, and so he's he's laying out the principles that God has revealed in his word. So that's going to close us for today. Um, we will start next time um, talking about new covenant burdens uh, as far as compared to the old. What do we have today? We don't have sacrifices, but there's still economic burdens being a believer. Uh, and so we'll talk about some of that. So some of that will be a little bit easier. Be, <laughs> it won't be as tough sledding uh, going through and, and discussing some of these things. Um, but we'll, we'll close in prayer for now. And then um, if we have questions or comments, we can discuss that after. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we, we realize that some of these concepts are... Um, we may have a general idea, but, but how these things play out and, and what our role in them is, it's sometimes difficult to understand. But we recognize that, Lord, you have given us a blueprint for life. You have shown us how we ought to conduct ourselves in your world as it is all yours. Uh, so we pray that we would have an appreciation for this. We pray that you would help our minds to be able to meditate on it, to, to consider it, to see the wisdom in it and see how... Um, we have a role to play in all of this. So we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the time that we have to spend in it. Uh, we pray that uh, you would just bless each one who's here and, 
as they head home, that you would bring them home safely and that their minds and their eyes would be fixed on you throughout the week to, uh, to honor and glorify you in all that they do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.